talk about a, a theological word today as we get into to Job 24, uh, because Job is certainly dealing with here. The, the, um, the word is the word theodicy. Now, I know that sounds like theology, and it sounds like other things, but it's, the word is theodicy. I printed it on your outline there. Uh, the, the word theodicy uh, basically is the idea, it's a kind of a technical theological term that means a defense of God's goodness and power. Um, uh, another person has written, uh, it is the idea of speaking justly of God in the context of evil or pain. Speaking justly about God in the context of evil or uh, calamity or pain. That certainly fits what, um, what Job is dealing with here. Now, basically, um, uh, the issue of theodicy continues, uh, contains three ideas about God. You may want to write them down. Okay, we've, we've talked about this through this whole series, but I want to kind of distill it a little bit in three kind of pethy statements that fit about God. These are truths, things that we can hang on to, um, but they're not going to make you any less nervous about a difficult time in your life necessarily. Okay, The first one is that God is insurpassably good. Now, we have said that, uh, and when I say God is good, I get... All the time, and all the time, God is good, okay? So God is insurpassably good. So you've got to kind of, that qualifying there says there's no one better than God, okay? He is only good, he's good all the time, and he's insurpassably good, okay? Second, then, is the idea that God is, that God is incomparably powerful, okay? He's unsurpassed in his good, in his goodness, and he's incomparably powerful. There's no one to compare with the power of God. Okay, so God is good. God is, yeah, there you go. All right, see, I love it. God is unsurpassably good. He is incomparably evil. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, looking, at, I'm looking at the next, yeah. I've already ruined the talk, haven't I? God is unsurpassably good. He's incomparably powerful and Here's the third statement. This is the one that makes us nervous. Suffering and evil nonetheless exist. Nonetheless. Suffering and evil nonetheless exist. God is unsurpassably good. He's incomparably powerful. Suffering and evil nonetheless exist. Seems inconsistent, doesn't it? But it's just true. Now, we can look at solutions to that, and let me give you two or three false solutions to this theodicy issue, okay? All right? One would be, uh, one false solution would be to fail to look candidly at the reality of evil. In other words, there are entire groups of people who just fail to look at the issue of evil. They'll say, well, it really doesn't exist. It's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a, a result of imagination and sin. Uh, uh, it was uh, uh, my dad's common response to about any complaint that he would say, it's all in your mind. It's all in your mind. Uh, now, he didn't mean that verbatim, but Skip, you've heard him say it. It's all in your mind. Uh, it just meant uh, it move on. 
But, but there are some who kind of try to bypass the evil questions to say, well, it's kind of, kind of an illusion or just a, they avoid uh, looking candidly at the reality of evil. Others, um, in the presence of protracted suffering, um, others might be tempted to abandon the Christian affirmation of the insurmountable goodness of God. Okay, so either way, it's, those are mistakes, all right? One would be to kind of ignore evil. Uh, evil really doesn't exist. It's all in your mind, right? The other would be to, to not really deal with or acknowledge the Christian affirmation of the unsurmountable, uh, insurmountable goodness of God. And then, of course, the third premature solution would be to this, which is no solution at all, is to limit, so to speak, God's power. Be to say, well, God is and God's good, but he really can't do anything about that. All three of those options are incorrect, untrue, and they're not going to result in faith. In fact, they're going to result in just the opposite. Now, Job is dealing here with those very things uh, in, in this little book. And I, and I really believe it is left for us in our Old Testaments for us to understand and deal with the issue. Now, we got into it a little bit last week. What was the common view of the day that Job was dealing with? It had two pieces to it, right? Two sides of the same coin. He must be doing something wrong. So if there's something going wrong with you, you've done something wrong. If all things are going right with you, then it's because you're doing everything right. Everybody bought into that, including Job, until this happened to him. And he had to come to terms with, evidently, my system of belief is goofed up. And he deals with that for chapter after chapter here. And uh, we've been dealing with it for just a couple of weeks here. All right, now, let's, um, uh, between what we dealt with last week in 19 and this week in 24, Job has undergone two more rounds of, quote, counseling, okay? One by his friend Zophar and one by Eliphaz, okay? Another couple of, they, couple of times they were trying to work with him. What was the outcome? Well, they weren't comforting at all. That's why we use this term kind of tongue-in-cheek, Job's comforters, because the comforters didn't comfort at all. So, um... They said, basically, he, was, he must have been guilty of wrongdoing uh, that deserved to be punished, and that's why he was going through all this. What did they not know? What did Job not know that we know? The devil did every bit of this, and God had him on a leash, if you read chapter 1 and 2. All right. Now remember, through this whole book, Job is dealing with the issues of faith of his life without knowing what you and I are able to know in chapter 1 and 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. <coughs> what we're able to access in chapter 1 and 2 about this uh, conversation that went on between God and Satan. Now, so Job reacts... And he expresses his wish. Uh, by the way, don't do this, okay? Just don't, you just don't want to do this. God wants to stand before God and plead his case. I'm sorry, Job wants to stand before God and plead his case. Boy, am I confused today. <coughs> First I made God evil, and then, okay. 
Job wants, he, he expresses uh, in chapter 23 his wish that he could stand in God's presence so he could plead his case. But he confesses that it must be impossible to do so. So that's kind of where we find him by uh, chapter 24. And he's also recognizing that he's absolutely powerless to do anything about God's plans for him. It's just going to all play out. Okay, now I want us to go to, to chapter 24, and I just want us to deal for a minute with verse 1. Somebody read verse 1. Now, the questions, these rather rhetorical questions that Job asks here, he's challenging God. Uh, do have a piece of faith in them. He's recognizing here that nothing is hidden from God. You can write that in your outline. Nothing is hidden from God, okay? Um, uh, and secondly, he's really acknowledging not only that nothing is hidden from God, but he's acknowledging his unlimited power. So he's kind of got that right in the, in the way in this issue. Uh, he knows that God sees the wrongs in the world. And he even acknowledges in these questions in some way that God has the power. He has the ability to do something about it. He's just confused as to why he's not doing something about it. You ever been there? Okay. I got two parts of it right. God sees. He knows. He has power. So why is he sitting on his hands? You ever had the thought, God must be sitting on his hands in my issue? You know that term, sitting on your hands? It's like, you can't do something about it, but you're not doing anything about it. I want to submit to you that the only time in all of eternity, the only time in all of recorded human history and eternity that God actually sat on his hands was one Friday about 3 o'clock. He was involved in that. He willed it, and he didn't do anything about it. My dad used to sing a song. He could have called 10,000 angels. Anybody ever heard that old song? Wonderful gospel song. He could, but he died alone for you and me. Did, has God ever sat on his hands? He did there. And you and I are really glad that he did. But I'm going to submit to you that that's the only time that God has ever looked away from our trouble. Now, I want us to go to verse 9. Bob, would you slip down to 9 and read through 12? Okay, we're, we're going to deal here, Job's going to deal with some injustices in his world that are also prevalent, or present at least, in our world. Job, what am I doing wrong? 
Okay, I'll, I'll watch it. Steve, can I get you to run over to Deuteronomy 24 and 25? There are two or three passages we want to read there in just a minute. I'm going to let you hover over there, if you will. And somebody go to Malachi 3.15. If you tend to be a little Italian, you can call him Malachi, okay? Uh, Malachi 3.15. Uh, Cindy, that'd be great. Uh, and we're going to kind of get to those in just a minute. Now, the issue here is the vulnerability of poor folks in Job's day. Now, Job wasn't poor. At least he didn't start out that way, okay? But he sees injustice. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 6. Okay, it's talking about here the seizing of assets as collateral in a loan. Somebody is down on their luck, <clears throat> and they uh, collateralize a millstone here, and uh, the Bible is saying, don't go get that, or then they'll have no hope. Okay? Now, in, in Job's uh, discussion here, beginning of verse 9, he's talking about even putting a child up as collateral. Can you imagine being more desperate? Now, what would happen if a child would be taken as collateral and then seized? then that child is, becomes a slave. That's kind of, kind of the issue here. And Job is saying this, this, these things just should not be. Um, now, uh, so uh, the issue here is that to be fatherless, and you and I know, in the ancient Near East, was to be very vulnerable. Uh, could result even in slavery, and often did. And so he begins to talk about that, and then in verse 10, he's talking about other ways that, that the um, wicked that are kind of connected uh, have a tendency to inflict pain on the poor uh, in his day and even in our day. Let's talk about it a little bit. How, what are some ways that, um, that the poor or, or, uh, have a tendency to be uh, exploited in our day? I, I thought of that almost immediately when I asked my own question here. Human trafficking, which usually happens to somebody who, who is uh, kind of down and out, and then it just becomes worse. Uh, it could be, uh, that could include, uh, for instance, at least, uh, prostitution. Uh, all of those things kind of have a, how about uh, unreasonably low wages? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about minimum wage here. I'm talking about those who in some parts of the world can, um, can get things done by low wages just because that just because they can. Um, um, how about those who monopolize resources? And in other words, uh, I I can so I will, but I, you know you probably shouldn't. Uh, those who would bribe a judge or a witness in court. Those who are are guilty of price fixing, for instance. Okay, kind of we see all those where where those who are unconnected. Um, uh, less resourced are kind of put even more at peril uh, by those who could help but instead make the problem worse. Okay? You get it? He's kind of dealing with this some here. In his day, and you and I know that they continue certainly into our day. <coughs> now, okay, Ruth. This is something you guys deal with on a regular basis. You help, help those who are incarcerated. 
the idea is there's somebody who's charged with a serious crime, and whether they're guilty or innocent, they can't afford representation. Now, you and I know there's the public defender's thing, but we're not real sure how, how effective that is. Steve, I think back to our two girls that are, I'm assuming, still in jail. And um, part of that is this issue, as I recall. They have an attorney, but it's taking all the mom's money, which isn't very much to start with. Yeah, so you kind of get that idea. Now, Job is kind of dealing with this here in his day, and it continues in our day. What I believe verse 11 is telling us is that God's people are called upon to oppose injustice. Now, I want to point to another passage or two from uh, Deuteronomy here that address the same thing. Steve, can I get you to go to 24? You were in 24 a minute ago. Read 19 down through 22. Now jump, if you will, to chapter 25 and read verse 4. I've heard that all my life, and I'm not sure I completely understood it till recently. What does it mean to not muzzle the ox? Let him eat while he's working. Okay, let him eat while he's working. That's exactly right, Fred. So the idea here is you've got people who are treading in, in, in verse 10 and 11 here. You've got the image you need to catch is poor people, unresourced people. Not just under-resourced, but unresourced. They're working for people who have resources. And for instance, they're picking olives, but they're not allowed the oil. They're uh, picking or, uh, or um, uh, processing grapes, but not allowed wine. They're uh, helping harvest sheaves of grain, but not allowed to take a little bit home. The Bible expressly deals with this, uh, that, that as I labor, I ought to get the fruits of my labor. So uh, the idea here is that you and I uh, are called upon to oppose this kind of injustice as, as well as other kinds, all right? Now, Job looks at all this and looks at his own situation and he just, his conclusion is, this is interesting, his conclusion is God can do something about it, but he's not. He is sitting on his hands. God is doing nothing. That's the word that goes in the blank right there. Cindy, would you read Malachi 3.15? According to Job, as far as he can tell, only the poor are crying out in desperation. The wicked are thriving, and the poor are crying out in desperation. I, I find that kind of interesting, don't you? Even as I think about it in the context of my day. Um, I, I just kind of think it's interesting. Um, now, those of us 
who heard that a plane had struck the World Trade Center on 9-11 probably thought at first, what a terrible accident. And then we realized that that was intentional. Reforded, recorded phone calls and radio transmissions allow us to hear today still the groans of the dying that are rising from the city. And we feel so helpless in the light of that kind of tragedy. Uh, since God has foreknowledge of all this kind of stuff, why didn't he do something about that? Well, I think we need to keep at least a couple of things in mind as we think about this before we move on beyond uh, verse 12. I think one of the things we need to recognize in my life, and I, I've got to have eyes of faith to see this, is that God may indeed prevent hundreds of evil actions every day, but we don't ever see those. Uh, we don't see the Job 1 and 2 stuff going on. Who knows what God protected me from today? Um, sweet Amy Grant sang way back in the 80s, angels watching over me every step I take. Well, you know what? It wasn't just angels, Amy. It was the Lord. I think there are times when I'm, I'm lapsed uh, kind of in my daily driving. I'm lapsed a little bit into inattention. And there are just occasions when I recognize, you know what? That could have gone an entirely different way. Why not? Oh, it was just a coincidence, right? So at first, I think we need to recognize that the Lord is acting on our behalf lots of times, probably every day that we don't see. And second, God may, in fact, occasionally turn the tables on you and say, okay, I agree with you. Something needs to be done about that. What are you going to do about it? Here's what I love about you. In instance after instance, table after table, person after person, you have felt God tapping you on the shoulder and said, I realize, I agree with you, this isn't right. What are you going to do about it? And you've said, you tell me what to do. I'm signing up. And I watch you get to do, I watch you doing that. And it brings faith to my heart and encouragement and joy to me to watch you getting involved. I think we've got to acknowledge that there's more implicated than just the Lord, his direct involvement. His indirect involvement through you is a big deal. And it may be how he chooses to help some of these injustices. Now, I want you to jump ahead to verse 19. And I want us to read um, a few more verses here. Okay? 19 down through 25. Somebody read those? <clears throat> I want you to think here of the mental image that Job begins to use as, as he's kind of coming to some understanding of his own, even though he's not there yet. 
he begins to think about the fate of the wicked and the prosperity of the wicked, and he sees it as snow on the mountaintop. Okay? He's probably looking out at a field that's dry and parched. But there's snow way up here. What's eventually going to happen? The snow will melt and the valley will be rushed with water, right? He's kind of dealing with that here as he compares the fate of the wicked with the effects of of relentless heat or the fate of kind of melted snow. Job is dealing here with the fate of the wicked. I I read this week about a guy by the name of uh, John Demyanyak. I'm probably not saying that right, but he's got J's where I think they're supposed to pronounce Y's. Okay. Demyanyak. He he was born in 1920, but he didn't die until 2012, which is interesting. You may have read his story. Uh, Literally, this guy got away with murder. Uh, John lived in obscurity in the U.S. from 1952 until 1986 when he was deported to Israel to stand trial for his alleged role in the Nazi Holocaust. His subsequent conviction in 1988 for war crimes was overturned in 1993, and he was charged anew in, in 2001. He's deported back to Germany in 2009 to stand trial, and he was convicted there in 2011 on 27,900 separate counts of accessory to murder. Now, here's what makes you crazy. The conviction was annulled because Demyanyuk died before his appeal could be heard. Thus, literally, at the time of his death, he was still innocent. Legally innocent, and yet you and I know, incredibly guilty. Doesn't it seem like too many of these kinds of things happen? When you and I think of that, Job says, think of the snow on the mountaintop. The heat will eventually melt that, he said. Okay? Now, look at verse 20. He, he kind of goes to a point here that's really interesting. He says, the evil don't leave a legacy that's worth remembering. I want you to go with me to Hebrews 11. We're going to read verse 4 in just a minute. Okay, so go over the end of your, your New Testament. Keep your, keep your finger there in, uh, in uh, Job 24. But go to Hebrews 11. Um, um, he, uh, uh, I reference another passage in 2 Chronicles where, um, where there's a wicked king that it basically says about him, when it talks about his death, it says no one was really sorry about that. He followed the, the um, godly king, Jehoshaphat, and it basically says, uh, you know, kind of the postscript of his life was, he did this, he did this, he did that, and nobody was really sorry when he died. Look at Hebrews 11.4. Somebody read that? This is going to talk about Abel. Abel's, Abel's life still speaks by faith, even though he's dead. Now, what I want to recognize is that I want to leave a legacy that speaks after my life is gone. Life on earth here is gone. Uh, Job is kind of coming to terms with the only thing that the, the evil dead leave behind is perhaps a bad example. 
Okay? You, you and I have kind of dealt with those in the past. All right? In verse 21 that we read just a minute ago, God sees, and this is interesting uh, for those of you who are involved in some of this, um, the most, the most um, vulnerable of Job's day were, were widows and children, widows and orphan children. And so God kind of deals with this uh, as, uh, as Job is kind of dealing with this here. Uh, God sees the exploitation of women and he just doesn't like it. And Job is even commenting on it here. No husband to protect her. Um, uh, it's kind of that idea. I referenced Ruth 4 because that's what Ruth kind of got into. She had no one to take care of her. And, um, and, and God sees that. Okay. Now look at verse 22 and I'll read it to you. He drags off the valiant by his power. He rises, but no one has assurance of his life. The, the idea here is that God has a way of exposing arrogance. Godless arrogance. God has a way of exposing. And I reference here a story, a parable that, that uh, Jesus tells from Luke 12, where the man is wealthy and he decides his barns aren't big enough because he's getting more and more. So he builds what? Bigger ones. And Jesus says that God calls him a fool and requires his life of it while he's trying to decide um, the dimensions of these bigger and better barns. Okay, the idea is that God has a way of exposing arrogance here. Now, verse 23 has a, a good message for you and me. He, he, when it's talking about um, um, them, it's talking about the godless thriving. He provides them with security. They're supported. And his eyes are on their ways. They're exalted a little while. Then they're gone. Moreover, they're brought low and like everything gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they cut off. Now, uh, the idea here is that the wicked may go unhindered for a while. And you and I may say, I don't like that. And in fact... When I think of those who have lived, especially in, in former generations, I realize that many of those people died while the wicked were still thriving. Maybe, maybe there's something in your life that just seems unfair here. And while, meanwhile, somebody who has not taken the right trajectory is just thriving. That may go on unhindered for a while, but God still sees. Verse 24 kind of leaves me with the impression that the high and mighty, that the, those who are... are um, um, kind of ungodly arrogant, are brought low. Now, so Job is left with this conclusion. He says in verse 25, Now if it's not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? It, it almost sounds like Job has changed his position. Or is God calling out God to bring justice? See, that's what I think he's doing. God, I think Job is saying, God, are you really good? Now, I read some writing this week from Philip Yancey. He writes a book years ago called Disappointment with God. Listen to what he says. God wants us to choose him freely and love him freely, even when that choice involves pain, because we're committed to him, not to our own good feelings and rewards. He wants us to cleave to him as Job did, even when we have every reason to deny him hotly. 
That, I believe, is a central message of Job, Gancy says. Satan had taunted God with the accusation that humans are not truly free. Was Job being faithful simply because God had allowed him a prosperous life? Job's fiery trials proved the answer beyond doubt. Job clung to God's justice when he was, he was the best example in history of God's apparent injustice. He didn't seek the giver because of his gifts. When all gifts were removed, he still sought the giver. Here's one more statement. You may want to write this one down. This is too good to, to not miss. Job couldn't see it all. But here's a thought. Faith means believing in advance. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Have you ever claimed Romans 8.28 over a situation in your life? God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. By the way, don't use that on somebody else. Okay? That's just for you. Okay? Not fair to play that card with somebody else's calamity. But aren't, isn't it true, it's certainly been true in my life, that as I look, as I have the benefit of time, I can certainly see how God was involved in that, even though it made no, completely no sense at the time. Lord, what are you doing? You're obviously sitting on your hands yet again. And yet, months later, maybe years later, it is abundantly crystal clear to me what God was up to in that season in my life. Are you in that season or are you beyond it? Uh, many of us in this room are in that season or in a season like that. I want to encourage you with the truth that faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse as I look back. Years ago, I encountered this little prayer. Anonymous, it just comes, it says, from a Confederate soldier. It's called a Confederate soldier's prayer. Maybe you've heard it. Here's what it says. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. I am among men most richly blessed. Here's what goes in your bottom blank, because I know it's bugging you. Can I tell you something? Whatever our level of suffering, God has taken his own medicine. Whatever our level of suffering, God's has been greater. Can you imagine how he grieves over the same things that we grieve over? And can you imagine how painful it must have been to turn his eye away and allow the cross to happen?
to the only one ever who could plead complete innocence. Okay, I don't know if this is helping you. It's helping me, so you get to listen in, all right? And uh, we'll be in 42 next week. I hope you have a great Sunday. God bless you.